Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about the 40-year-old version, a 2020 Sundance winner that was acquired by Netflix and released a few weeks ago. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 98%, and the critics' consensus reads, the 40-year-old version opens a compelling window into the ebbs and flows of the artist's life. and announces writer-director star Rada Blank as a major filmmaking talent with her feature debut. I really enjoyed this, and if you haven't seen it, I recommend you pause the podcast and come back to us after, because today's conversation might contain spoilers. My guest for that conversation is the film's cinematographer, Eric Bronco. Eric, welcome to Below the Line. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Eric, I'm glad you're here as well. So let's, before we dive into the specifics of the film, and there's a lot of very interesting cinematography questions specifically here, tell us first a little bit about your early career. Yeah, I, um, I, I think I got into film uh, from, a, from a funny angle. Uh, I started out as, I grew up in New York City, um, and kind of always knew I wanted to do something related to storytelling and film or theater or what have you. And so as a, as a kid, I started acting in uh, off-Broadway plays and off-Broadway off, off, off plays. Um, you know, I think just to, just to kind of be closer to the world and, and feel like I was, you know, a little, a little more involved in something bigger. Um, that kind of led to really falling in love with movies and wanting to make my own films. Uh, so kind of in high school, I, st- I, you know, I thought my path was going to be kind of writer, director, actor in the kind of Spike Lee, Woody Allen, you know, vein of, of the New York filmmakers I knew at the time. Um, and uh, when I started making short films with my friends, uh, kind of quickly realized that there was no one to hold the camera. Uh, so I stepped back from acting uh, to shoot the movies that we were making and then totally fell in love with cinematography and telling a story visually. Now, on IMDb, you have a ton of shorts credited. It looks like that even as you've done feature work over your career, you're continuing to do short films and other projects. What sort of what's the context of that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think I I just love you know, telling stories and, and doing good work. And so if it's, if it's a short film uh, that speaks to me, I'm still going to do it. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not kind of, I kind of out, I'm not above doing short films, I guess I'll say, um, you know, and I, and there are some short films that I absolutely love some directors I've been working with, such as uh, like Marshall Tyler and Alfonso Johnson um, who, you know, we've been, we've been together for a couple of years doing shorts and they all have features in the works. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a good way to meet people and, and, and continue relationships kind of even in between the bigger projects. Now on those bigger projects, I noticed that you've got a number of films where you collaborate with writer directors, uh, which is often the idea that someone has their own vision for something coming together. Is that something you gravitate towards or that's just how it's gone coincidentally? Uh, talk to me a little bit more about the larger projects. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, uh, you know, even when I say larger projects, I'm still speaking about kind of larger indies. Um, and usually, uh, independent films are, are kind of heralded by one voice. Um, so usually, it is a writer director that kind of forces the film into existence. Um, you know, it's not the kind of, most indies. Uh, are not the kinds of movies where there's a separate writer and then they bring in somebody to direct. Or, you know what I mean? Everybody's kind of 
taking a chance on t- trying to tell one story. And it looks like that led up to another well-recognized film, Clemency, which was the 2019 Grand Jury Prize winner at Sundance. How did that come together? That came together through a short film. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I reconnected with a friend from high school uh, a couple years back who just through our talking said, oh, you know, there's someone I should, I should put you in touch with. A mutual friend of ours, uh, Chinoya Tuku, who she was looking for a DP for a short film she was doing uh, at the time. So we ended up kind of hitting it off and collaborating um, on the short film, A Long Walk, which we shot in Philly in 2013 um, and just had a great time, you know, just really, really, uh, I think, you know, we're speaking the same language and, and the same things resonated with us. And so we kind of shortly after wrapping that short, you know, I got a message from her saying, hey, listen, I'm working on a feature script. Uh, can I send it to you when I'm done? I was like, of course. So I think a couple months after that was the first draft of Clemency, probably like early 2014, maybe, mid-2014. And it was just, it was just the kind of project that took, you know, five, you know, four or five years to get off the ground. Every, it was kind of like every year that we'd have the financing and then it would fall through. And then we'd mm-hmm. get the financing back and then it would fall through. And then we'd cast an actor and they would fall out. And really, uh, in the in the kind of winter of 2018, all the puzzle pieces fit together perfectly. You know, Alfred Woodard signed on. Once she was involved, uh, you know, the financiers were a little more willing to to stick their neck out. And so, uh, we shot. Yeah, we shot in in over uh, 17 days in uh, in early 2018. Oh wow! Uh, and then a year later, uh, premiered Sundance, which was amazing. Well, from what I've extrapolated on my own research, it sounds like your collaboration with Rada Blank for the 40-year-old version was on a bit tighter of a schedule. Tell me a little bit more about how you got involved with this project, where it was when you came in, and then what you brought to it. I think most indies kind of have similar similar um, evolutions. This project was, I think, supposed to be a web series at first. That fell apart. Uh, then it was going to be a feature that they were going to shoot the year before we did that fell apart. And so I think maybe, I think, you know, crew gets shuffled, people become unavailable. And so uh, they were looking for a new DP and uh, Rada and I have known each other for a couple of years. Uh, I think, you know, just from a kind of the, the film festival circuit and just kind of being people that, that moved to the same circles a little bit. Um, and I had shot a short film called cap, which had won the American black film festival the summer prior and so i had had some black and white work you know that was out there and available and i um and we had a ton of mutual friends and so uh they reached out uh her team reached out to me uh met rada in a coffee shop you know we talked for like two hours straight and uh shortly thereafter uh, they offered me the film now so that's interesting so in talking about the black and white this is a film then where that was part of her vision. And so she saw your other work in the black and white space. Cause that's one of the most striking things about the film is that, yep. It's modern film, modern day, yet filmed primarily in black and white. So yeah. like, again, this sort of idea around it, tell me more. I don't think, I, I think, you know, shooting in black and white is such a bold choice. Um, and a choice that is going to kind of follow the movie through its, through the movie's lifespan that, I would be surprised there are any movies out there that the idea to film in black and white came from the DP. You know, I think that's such kind of a creative, um, you know, that choice kind of in the, in the DNA of the film. Uh, so I would imagine that most black and white films, that idea is part and parcel with, 
with the entire you know concept of the film from the start. But uh, that said, I mean, I you know shoot tons and tons and tons of stills in black and white. I love you know black shooting in black and white and and only working in contrast and kind of seeing the world that way um, is something that I love. And so when the opportunity presented itself to do a feature film in black and white, especially a feature film in black and white shot in New York in my hometown, you know, I jumped at that immediately. New York is your hometown, but you're not exclusively based in New York. You're filming on both coasts. Yeah, so I moved to LA a couple of years ago. I moved to LA actually right before we shot Clemency. Um, and then since then, I've just been bouncing back and forth and all over the place and traveling the world. But, uh, but yeah, um, um, I'm in New York right now for a show I'm doing. So yeah, I'm, you know, I'm kind of wherever, wherever there's an airport, you'll find me. <laughs> and so, okay. So on the filming itself then, so there's this decisions made ahead of time to be black and white. And I, I, what was the intent as you understand it behind wanting to do this film in black and white so much that they're trying to find people with that expertise to work in the space rather than the other way around? Primarily filming in black and white. I mean, just a couple things. Filming in black and white, uh, I think really kind of strips away some of the visual flourish and distraction and really makes people hone in and focus on the story, mm-hmm. um, which I think was important to Rada. And I think also, you know, I think kind of black film as a, as a larger subset of, of filmmaking really came to prevalence once color film had already been already kind of became the go-to medium for shooting a a feature. So I think it was an opportunity to kind of do an indie film that would present, uh, you know, the Black experience, especially in New York, uh, kind of in a way that we haven't really had opportunities to see. You know, know, Black film doesn't have a French New Wave. It doesn't have, you know, the stories kind of, kind of, created and told and starring black actors uh, never really had their moment to shine in black and white. So it was a chance to kind of go back and kind of correct that a little bit as well. So pushing it to black and white is something that could have been done in post, but clearly you guys made the decision ahead of time that you were going to capture in black and white. Tell me a little bit more about the challenges and the decision-making behind that. I think, you know, Rod and I always intended to, to capture in black and white rather than just convert it later um, you know, I think, I think it's a, it's a, came down to me for a film stock choice. You know, uh, there have been a lot of beautiful films shot in color, uh, on color stock that you then just desaturate and they look beautiful. Uh, but I think there's something magical to kind of seeing that, having that silver on the negative that, uh, the black and white gives you. And that's really how, how I, I saw the film, you know, one of kind of our, our primary challenge of with shooting black and white was that um, there was a the Kodak was the only live in New York at the time, kind of developing uh, daily uh, and kind of, you know, at the scale that we needed. Um, and they were wrapped up uh, with Spielberg's West Side Story remake. Uh, and so they did not have the capacity to convert a bath to black and white for us. Um, so shooting black and white meant that we were gonna have to ship our film somewhere else. And we, which in turn meant that we would have, I think it was like a four day turnaround between shooting and seeing dailies. Um, so there was some early discussion about, from you know producers and financiers about if that was gonna be okay. And, you know, thankfully Rod really pushed to, you know, push to comfort them and, uh, and, and make that part of the process. So we were able to shoot on black and white. <laughs> 
You know, Eric, let's take a moment on that because in the day of video playback, where you can barely do a take of a scene without watching it right away on a, on a modern set, the idea of waiting four days to see what you've actually shot, I, I am surprised that that was approved. I mean, that's a, a real dedication to the creative vision of it. Well, uh, yes, it was approved. That said, it was a very interesting workflow because we were recording our video feed. Um, so the first assembly of the film was actually made using recorded uh, video taps. Okay. Uh, okay. And then that was then replaced with our kind of like one light scan uh, in the assembly. And then that was replaced with a nice 2K scan in the assembly. And then that was eventually replaced with a 4K scan uh, right after picture was locked, right before we did color. So... <laughs> So you're able to do the work so you could get feedback and idea from a directing and performance perspective and did we capture it? Yeah. But how it's actually going to come together, what's actually on the film, you have to wait for it to, for took, it to make the turnaround. Yeah, it took a couple of days for the, to get the film, the negatives back and then get those scanned. Um, but yeah, I mean, but, you know, we were able to watch dailies instantly. On, we were able to watch takes instantly on set using uh, video playback, just not at the quality that maybe, you know, you'd be used to say working in kind of video now. Got it, got it. Okay, well, whew, that's a relief. And I'm sure that was a relief for your other departments that wanted to see what was, what was going on as well. Yeah, part. definitely, definitely, definitely. But tell me a little bit about collaborating with other departments in this idea of, of black and white, where what you capture in the end um, is not gonna have the, the full you know, color structure of, of normal filming. Yeah, I mean, it was about, uh, you know, collaboration between departments was, was um, I can kind of go through each department a little bit, you know. Uh, yeah, please do. Yeah. Like what are some of the specific challenges that people brought to you or vice versa? I mean, in my own head, challenges became how do you, how do you, it, with lighting, uh, determine a time of day without color? You know, it's the kind of thing where, where we're also used to, if it says late afternoon, that means it's going to be orange light streaming in the windows. And that sells, you know, that sells what time of day it is. If it's dawn, uh, it's going to be soft blue light filling the room because that's what dawn looks like. But it became this kind of thing of like, okay, how do we make dawn without a color? So, you know, that's an interesting challenge. Uh, kind of the whole first couple of minutes of the movie take place in Rod's apartment kind of in a, in a dawn time of day. And it was really about kind of just keeping exposure down, keeping light very soft and indirect, you know, and making it clearly there was no kind of sun coming into her uh, into her apartment windows, you know, and that's kind of how we got around that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, definitely kind of lighting without color is an interesting challenge. Um, not in, not so much aesthetically, just in terms of storytelling and structurally and what time, you know, so much of, of our world is seen in color. What time of day is it? Where are we? What is this? Color is a big part of all of that. Um, so finding interesting and creative ways to get around that was, was a challenge. Um, but then also thing, other things like costuming and production design where, you know, there were a couple, uh, there were a couple times where, uh, uh, Peter Kim, who plays Archie, uh, Rada's kind of best friend in the movie, uh, and agent, uh, would come to set looking, you know, looking phenomenal in kind of a, a multicolor suit, you know, in like a kind of a, a, a bluish, a bluish blazer, a pink shirt and a khaki pair of pants but then he gets in front of the camera and it's just all the same shade of gray <laughs> so it was kind of right. you know costuming became more about pattern and texture and contrast um and less about kind of pleasing color so you know a lot of the costumes 
uh, a lot of the costumes to the eye on set were a little loud and garish. <laughs> Things you would never actually dress people in. But uh, but on black and white, they look you know they look elegant and amazing, um, and and deep and textured and and all that stuff. Now, is that interesting? You mentioned about like showing up on set, and maybe there's some hyperbole there. But um, these folks in the in the pre planning must have also known some of the limitations. Your costume folks, your your set designers, recognizing how these things are going to play out. Although, like that issue of uh, you know how we look to color for cues, it's not self evident. Right, and that when you take these yeah. take color away, the absence of it, it it's it's like going blind on some level, and people don't necessarily anticipate that in advance. Yeah, I mean, everybody, um, any picture, you know, so much of so much of making of a, a movie these days is, um, you know, iPhone pictures and every you know iPhone pictures or whatever else bounced all around between departments between between people working, you know, so. Early on, the kind of mandate went out, any picture sent, it should be in black and white. Um, you know, please don't send a color of a, of a red wall because that's not, you know what I mean? That's, right, it's right. not gonna help anybody to see that. So, <laughs> uh, you know, there's a, you know as, as a film that takes place in the theater, there were a lot of theater, po- of kind of theatrical play posters, flyers, those kinds of things. Uh, those were all printed in black and white because I think early on in, the, early on, uh, in testing, I think something, something was printed in black text on a red background, uh, which, <laughs> the eye, which the eye looked great. You could easily discern what it was, but then we filmed it and it was like dark gray on darker gray, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is, you know, that kind of, just that kind of thing. Uh, we, I mean, we did, and we also did a ton of tests on our actual stock with, with you know, things like, uh, fabric for costuming for production design a lot of things were actually filmed uh in black and in on the actual stock because even even just changing your your color uh sensor be that an iphone or a digital camera or whatever it is um desaturating a color image doesn't quite give you the same tones that a black a true black and white uh film stock is going to give you so i tried to do my best to to you know give everybody a couple hours of testing with the actual, <laughs> with the actual stock. Right. Right. What they'd actually see and to get some kind of idea about how things were going to, going to, going to play out because this isn't something that you can just reshoot entire scenes when you're working on this. I imagine you guys were budgeted like an indie film, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly, certainly if money was going to be spent reshooting, uh, it was not going to be because we just didn't foresee something and messed it up. <laughs> and that, at that point, at that point, the uh, the person gets replaced, not the scene. <laughs> well, let's talk then about um, how a crew for something like this comes together. I, there's a lot of handheld work in it. Are you doing your own handheld work, or do you have a separate operator? Uh, we had operators on set, kind of, you know, just with with you know the the union rules of shooting the movie, you have to have an operator. Uh, but I think part of the reason I was hired was because of my handheld work, and so. Uh, I probably operated, you know, 90% of the movie um, myself. So, uh, and then, you know, there were, there were some scenes where, where, you know, operators stepped in. There was, there was, I think there were two days I was actually really sick. Hmm. Uh, So I had to, I had to bow out and sit in the corner by the monitor. (laughs) Um, But, uh, but for the most part, yeah, it was me operating. And how large was your camera crew in the sense when you're filming black and white, are you looking at a larger crew and more equipment or in fact, were you streamlined on that side as well? 
I mean, we mainly had a, a four-person crew every day. We had um, an operator, uh, our first AC, uh, Sian Shen. We had a second AC, Jonathan Jang. Uh, and we had a loader, uh, Angela Kobu, who that was kind of our crew. Uh, but even, you know, even if it was color or if it was digital, it would still be the same size. You know, we'd have a first, a second, and instead of a loader, maybe a DIT, but ultimately kind of they're filling the same position. So camera crew was pretty small. Grew up in electric. We had, I think it was maybe four and four. Mm, um, okay. So I had a, I mean, actually, no, you know what? It was three and three. I think production budgeted for four and four. And I don't, I don't know how kind of technically you want me to get it. You know what I mean? Kind I'm of, curious about what kind of crew size you had. Yeah. So if yeah, you get so, too technical, I'll start to glaze over and I'll let you know, Eric. But in the meantime, good. tell uh, us more about who was there and how it but, broke uh, out. Yeah. So, I mean, production, I think budgeted for four and four. Uh, so meaning, you know, a gaffer, a grip, and then three uh, under them on the electric side and three under them on the grip side. Uh, I think I asked for, and then they you know, had budgeted extra, extra man days uh, on top of that. Cause we had some bigger, bigger things. Mm-hmm. And I think I adjusted those resources a little bit to, I think we carried at the end of the day, three and three on both sides. And I put that extra person on either department into man days. Um, okay. So, you know, which turned into probably, you know, it, it just allowed us to play more. So on grip heavier days, we might have five on grip side and three on electric. And then on electric heavier days, we might have five on electric and three on grip. Um, but our standard crew was was three and three every day. And uh, led by a gaffer, Tyler uh, Harmon Townsend, and a key grip, Scott D'Angelo. And so were you guys filming on location every day or was there some stage work for some of the set pieces or... You know, there was one, we had one stage day, uh, which was a necessity um, in order to get the New York production uh, tax credit. Um, oh, interesting. You have to, you, you have to shoot states, uh, I, I guess one stage day in order to, to qualify uh, for the tax credits in New York. So we did actually all the, uh, the Queen of the Ring boxing scene uh, was our stage day. Uh, which was, it was kind of a, a daylight photo studio that we only used at night and I lit up the windows to kind of get a sense of that kind of, it was like almost a big loft um, up in the Bronx. So uh, our production designer built a built a boxing ring uh, in the stage and, you know, made it, made it work. And then so, and how long was the shoot then on this one? This was 20 days we shot. Uh, week after week or did you guys have to take breaks in the middle? No, yeah, it was a it was a quick four week. I think I think it was four weeks prep and four week shoot. This was a twenty day shoot, and I think uh, I think we had a day of B roll after that, and I think we had a day of pickups maybe like two months later. Um, but these were all kind of skeleton. You know what I mean, like skeleton right. crew, just like kind of pickup days. But for the most part, with everybody on set, it was twenty days. There's a series of scenes that are shot in color, which mm-hmm. you might describe them better than I will. But basically, it's the story within the story, which just but. It looks like all of that could be done on a single day. Is that the case? They just that, or was that pick up or and and talked a little about the decision about we're going to do some color here. One about the thoughts behind it, and then if I haven't tagged too many questions onto this, sort of how then your caption of that is different than the rest of the movie. Yeah, we uh, it was kind of decided everything that took place in Rada's head was going to be in color, which. You know, if you haven't seen the movie, there's like, you know, there's just a couple cutaways or or things where she's thinking about what the play is going to be like that she's writing, or you know, or there's one in particular where she thinks about what how her manager got her a job, 
Um, these are, you know, these are all in color. In, originally, we wanted to shoot them uh, on 16 mil, but couldn't um, couldn't afford to carry a whole another camera package uh, and lens set. So we actually came up with the idea just of we just in the final cropped it down to what a 16 mil frame would be uh, on 35. So we, you know, on set we framed it for. I think we might have even put in a 16 mil ground glass. So we had 16 mil frame lines and it's about, you know, it's about half the size of the full 35 mil frame. Uh, but by doing that, hopefully everything's in there and the grain structure is what it would be on 16 and all that stuff. So interesting tidbit. That was all shot. Um, that was all shot MOS, meaning we were not recording sound uh, because the idea was always going to be that Rado was going to be the voice of all these characters. Uh, so we actually shot that uh, with our backs to the boxing ring as they were building it for our night work. <laughs> That's what we were shooting oh, really? the day to kind of maximize time. So, but did that on the stage as well. Your one stage day, so you went yeah, and picked those things up. Was, was half. Uh, yeah, we we built a built a you know brought in some seamless paper, uh, and then you know the lighting crew was rigging the overheads behind us, and they were building the boxing room behind us and everything. So, we, <laughs> you know, we kind of built a little blackout tent and shot this stuff. And since you're not capturing any sound on it anyway, then you're okay with all the construction. Yeah, you don't, you don't have to the, lock everything the, down. The drills and hammers going on behind us. <laughs> Well, talk to me more about the atmosphere on set in general. I, these, uh, th these indie films can be a grind or things can really come together. What was it like on this set? Uh, it was a mix. I mean, you know, it's a comedy, so there were definitely moments of lightness um, uh, on set. But at the same time, I think, I think it was a really ambitious, uh, ambitious film for the amount of money we had and the amount of time we had. Um, and so, there were, I mean, there were days that went very long. There were days where, you know, we were kind of all in it together. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. it was, you know, I think like most films, it's, it's, it's a mix. But this film comes together and then goes to Sundance. So were you able to attend yourself the, the festival last January? Yeah. Um, uh, I've been, I've been lucky enough to have a couple things in Sundance over the last few years. So it's kind of become a, become a family tradition of, uh, you know, we drive out, stop in Vegas, uh, continue on to Sundance, <laughs> kind of make it a road trip. Um, I go with my daughter, my wife, and my daughter every year. Okay. Um, so, you know, my daughter gets to, gets to go sledding and stuff while I'm doing <laughs> interviews and going to the premiere and all that stuff. So, uh, so yeah, we have fun. Uh, but it's always, I mean, Sundance is always amazing. It's kind of like a family reunion. Well, and so what was it like with, for this film? Could you get a sense that, that it was going to win an award? I mean, how, how does that, how does it feel like there's so many films and I just can't imagine what the process is like and never having actually been myself. Talk a little bit about what it's like to be there as a filmmaker with, with films in the competition. You know, it's interesting. I, I had, the first thing I had at Sundance was a, a anthology featured horror film called VHS, um, which played at Sundance and I could not afford to go uh, with it. So I didn't go. Uh, the second thing I had at Sundance was a, uh, short film in competition called Night Shift, uh, also directed by Marshall Tyler. And it was interesting, you know, it's kind of Sundance. And I think all these festivals can be very kind of like clicky and, and, it, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely people are measuring you based on the kind of badge you have around your neck uh, <laughs> with, before they, before they know you. Uh, so definitely the, the difference between having a, the difference between having a short film uh, at Sundance versus then having a feature in competition at Sundance versus then having a feature in competition at Sundance and having won the grand jury prize the previous year. Uh, I think, I think, you know, I, 
every year the meals get a little better. I get into uh, better parties. <laughs> it's a lot of that stuff. Do, um, if you're a previous winner, do you get a special badge for that? Do they put a little tag on your badge that says you I won wish, before? At this I point, wish. people know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, also, you know, also I think, I think just my comfort level at Sundance is, is, uh, has changed over the last couple of years. It's like, you know, now, uh, you know, I, I think I'm still kind of, kind of a, a young man and young and hopefully young in my filmmaking career, but it's like, now there are people at Sundance who, who, you know, I see them coming up behind me and I can't wait for them to, you know, to, to have a feature in competition. It's that, it's that kind of thing where, where there are, you know, there are people, I feel like I'm not kind of like, the 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 newbie anymore <laughs> at the festival that makes sense which is which is nice and uh was there something unique about this film that was going to capture this kind of attention or is there just a general atmosphere at sundance that you really don't know what's going to come out on the on the winning side of things i i mean i have never been more surprised in my life than i was when clemency won sundance mm-hmm. um you know there you don't get any sense uh you know when you go to the premiere, the judges kind of come in and you, you know, they're usually celebrities of some, of some fashion. Uh, they're kind of always kind of like ushered in quietly after the, you know, right as the lights go down. And then when the lights come up, they're gone, you know, they don't stay for the Q and a, you know, they keep it very, very separate. So, you know, you really don't get a sense of, of how they feel or how anyone's reacting to anything or any of that until, until they call the name, you know, at the award ceremony. Um, oh. Well, they'll get some sense of the audience reaction because they are watching the film with a full house, but yeah. they're not there for the Every, Q&A or any detail or diving no. in deep. The film's got to stand no. on its own. Yeah, they really, I mean, the film, I, I mean, that's something I will say. The film does really stand on its own, I think, with the, uh, with the jurors, which is nice. Um, I mean, this year, I, you know, Sundance is, I think, very different. Uh, if, you, if anybody's seen Clemency, it is a real downer. So it's like the... Uh, you know, the Q and A's for 40 are always like much livelier than uh, (laughs) standing up. uh, You know, when you, when you, when the lights go down after clemency, there's always like a minute of silence and then, you know, people are still wiping away their sniffles uh, during the Q and A. So, you know, there's definitely a good experience to kind of, you know, come back with something that's, that's, I mean, it's still, I think hopefully a powerful film, but definitely people come away from it feeling good and and feeling inspired, you know, in a way that a lot of my other work has not, has not kind of, I think, had that effect on people. Well, I mean, if you've had films in that have won awards now two years in a row, Eric, I mean, do you feel pressure that to find films that are going to play well at Sundance or like, uh, like what's the sort of, what's your next steps then having been affiliated with a couple of award-winning films in a row? Uh, I mean, the next step is that hopefully somebody, uh, hopefully somebody picks me up and actually pays me a check to uh, make a movie. <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the dream. Um, uh, which, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in New York. I'm shooting a, uh, uh, we're, well, I'm in pre-production right now about to start uh, shooting uh, a, an HBO max TV series. So this is fun. This is kind of my first, my first foray into TV. Uh, it's not a pilot. So, so this is exciting. Uh, you know, this is gonna be the first year in a while that I haven't had anything at Sundance. So, uh, I might be moving into, moving into the, the, you know, studio, <laughs> studio network side of things a little bit. Well, Eric, these are challenging times now under COVID, both on the, it'll be interesting to see what Sundance actually does 
come next come January for you know filming in twenty you know for the twenty twenty one competition. But also now that you're working in New York on a on a television show, I know a lot of films standing up, but a lot of different restrictions, a lot of uh, other challenges just in, in getting the work done these days. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't you know, um, I know Sundance is trying to have some in-person festival in some capacity, but uh, um, I'm certainly not at a place personally where I'm going to go sit in a theater with people I don't know. So, I mean, I, I imagine it's definitely a challenge for them to try and get that off the ground. And uh, I, you know, on the flip side, uh, on the flip side, I, th- I feel like being on a s- movie set or TV show set is the safest place you could be right now. You know, I'm, I'm getting texted three times a week, everyone else on the production, uh, including, our, our drivers and everybody's getting tested three times a week. So, um, you know, not the testing is the end all be all, but we're all getting tested. In addition, we're all wearing masks. In addition, we're all distancing. In addition, the offices and sets and equipment is all being sanitized uh, multiple times a day. So, you know, I mean, I, I feel like if I needed to be anywhere, uh, I'd probably choose to be on a film set. Well, appreciate that, Eric, and uh, appreciate you taking the time today to come, come talk about the 40 year old version. Once again, folks, if, uh, if you went ahead and listened without watching the film, that's okay. Go watch the movie. It's, uh, it's well worth your time. Eric, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. Listeners, your feedback is always welcome. You can send email comments to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-C. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast and help us reach new listeners. And new listeners, most of our material is evergreen, so feel free to peruse our past seasons. Maybe another episode will catch your eye. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Lawn for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Thanks again for listening. Be safe out there.